Welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah Levy. And I'm Ann Keller. Our guest today is Dr. James Beecroft. Dr. Beecroft is an emergency medicine physician practicing in the Niagara region in Ontario. Prior to beginning medical school, he received a Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree from the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph and worked as a veterinarian for seven years. He completed his family medicine residency and postgraduate year three in emergency medicine at McMaster University. He is an assistant clinical professor at McMaster's Department of Family Medicine and the regional education leader in emergency medicine and simulation lead for McMaster Medicine's Niagara Regional Campus. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Beecroft. <laughs> no problem. We have divided our interview into three sections. The first is about you and your specialty. We'll then move on to a few questions about your journey and how you decided your specialty was right for you. We'll then finish with the nitty-gritty details of what the day-to-day looks like in your job. Got it. So one of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast was because we wanted to get a feel for what specialties are really like in the day-to-day beyond the glimpse that we get as medical students or even as residents in an academic setting. So to that end, can you give us an elevator pitch or in other words, a short sales pitch for your job as an emergency medicine physician? Sure. So probably the quickest way to describe what my job is like is a job in emergency medicine is always very fast paced, mentally, physically challenging. There's a lot of instant gratification involved. So if you're into that, we don't do tests and wait for two weeks. You got it right away. You get to have a flexible schedule. You're definitely frontline. And that's a big topic nowadays with all the people who've been frontline with COVID. Our job didn't stop. It actually got busier and crazy things going on. And if you like dealing with lots of uncertainty, great specialty to be thinking about. It gives you lots of variety and lots of procedural skills that you get to practice each day without being a surgeon. How does your personality complement your job as you just described it? I've found over the years that my brain works best with a certain level of stimulation. When I don't have enough stimulation, I tend to go into auto mode or sleep mode and and my brain doesn't even work as well. So that certain level of stimulation certainly is something that tends to happen in emergency medicine, keeps me on my toes and actually keeps me kind of functioning at an optimum level. So that's definitely one thing that comes in handy and helps me out. I really enjoy problem solving and actually working with that uncertainty and I've become more comfortable with the amount of uncertainty. There definitely was some times where I had to always know everything and had to be right about absolutely everything. And that's been something that I've had to work with over time and learn how to deal with that uncertainty and actually think of it as a positive instead of always being a negative and just helping to think outside the box, which kind of keeps things fresh for you. It's never the same thing every day. You're always having changes and that keeps it new. Definitely, I enjoy doing team player activities when it comes to anything medical I like bouncing ideas off other people. I like having the students around and educating at the same time. And so all those things kind of really help me out in my job in the emergency department. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is take a look at the academic literature for what students think of a given specialty and then pose the stereotype to our guests. In digging around to see what medical students thought of emergency medicine, we found a study by Pianosi et al. published in 2017, which examined perspectives on emergency medicine of more than 500 medical students over a nine-year span at Memorial University. Common perceptions highlighted emergency medicine as exciting but stressful, and it was thought that it could lead to burnout with time. What do you think about these perceptions? I definitely, it's something that you need to think of before you go into a specialty. I had the advantage of already having had a career before I went back to school. So I kind of knew things I enjoyed doing and what things would be potentially a stumbling block or something that would burn me out. So for example, 
Something I noticed as a veterinarian is that when I had patients, I realized that I would take them on very personally and they could be very draining. And and that would be the thing that would eventually try and probably burn me out that I would go home and still have to be thinking about things and doing things outside of time. And I wanted to have a family and have some life balance. And so that was one thing that I made a conscious decision saying, you know what? Okay, I know that this is a stumbling block for me. What are ways I can deal with that? And one of the ways actually in emergency medicine is the fact that I don't have these ongoing relationships with patients. And to me, that was one way for me to be able to handle this idea of taking ownership of something and sometimes having it overwhelm the rest of my life. So it helps to keep me in balance that way. I see some people coming into emergency medicine and they graduate and they're working like 20 shifts a month. Those are the people that I see getting burnt out and running into problems when they're just overstretching themselves. Important definitely to have some outside interests. You have a fair amount of spare time, so you need to have other things that you're going to want to do. So there are some people, I think, in emergency medicine that that is their life, but then they probably tend to do a whole lot more administrative things and things all related to that. But I think it's really important to already have in mind, I'm going to have extra time off. What kind of things can I do to give myself some purpose in life outside of the department so that I have things to spend my time on? And whether that's family or whether that's other activities, whether it's academia, sports, whether it's music, it gives you lots of opportunity to do that. And by having something to look forward to outside of the emergency department, it helps you to keep a life balance that helps to give you longevity. Another thing probably would be to say, don't be afraid to reevaluate your career goals on a fairly regular basis. So the emergency department moves fast. It also changes consistently. This July, I hit 11 years in practice. And so I was like, okay, what kind of things am I going to do? Well, I started actually within the last year doing some surgical assists. So it's still something clinical, something related to and yet not related to my job. It's actually probably more related back to my previous career where I was doing some surgical stuff. And so it's kind of nice. It still helps to build that collegiality. So it helps me out in my everyday life in the emergency department too. But it was kind of, okay, what things can I do to still keep keep moving forwards, but having enough variety and not getting myself burnt out? It's also the reason why I do a bunch of educational things too, between uh, emergency medicine and simulation too. It gives me some other things to still do clinically and yet not have to be completely overwhelmed. No matter what job you're in, you're always going to have some things that are going to be a challenge, some things that you're not going to enjoy. Like I don't know very many people that don't have anything at all whatsoever in their job that doesn't drive them crazy or they wish they didn't have to deal with. So having different options for you, it kind of helps you to, to be able to temper those down so it doesn't become an overwhelming problem. Thank you for all your suggestions on that. Do you think there are any other stereotypes other than that stressful burnout that we mentioned that people have? And what are your thoughts on those? So the one that always comes up is whether the person's an adrenaline junkie or not. If you take a look at the people, say, in our department, you might look at us and not necessarily think we're adrenaline junkies. And we probably would say that we're not either. And then then you get a day where things are extra chaotic and you're dealing with like multiple resuscitations and things and you get things finished. And then you realize that, yeah, I, I guess I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Um, <laughs> and yet... I don't think I give that persona to people. Like, I don't think they would think of me that way. There's also a good number of people too, when you see them, that seem very, very chilled. Some of that might be their personality so that it doesn't, like nothing bothers them. So it's a good specialty for them to be in because when it's chaos, it's like they really literally are not freaked out. And some of the rest of us are really good at acting. We've, <laughs> we've spent many years practicing and perfecting, not ever appearing as if things are out of control. 
if you stick around with us long enough, you probably start realizing how the way we're behaving or the way we interact might change when things get extra stressful. When I have too many things going on, I've already recognized, yeah, I talk out loud. I've done too many like training courses. I took ACLS instructors course years ago and it's all this closed loop communication. Well, now I do it all the time. Uh, <laughs> so I want to get extra chaotic. I have to tell the students, please do not call psychiatry because I'm really not talking to myself. It's just that it's the way I focus. And so you kind of get used to that and, and ways that you're going to deal with that. So there is a little bit of a, a certain amount of adrenaline junkie in you. Obviously, if you completely hated the stress and the anxiety that's going along with that uncertainty and the chaos that can be going on, you're not going to choose emergency emergency medicine. There's so many other options you could go into. On the flip side, it's not like that all the time. And so you have to realize that too. If you go into emergency medicine thinking that, yeah, you know what, I want to be like a rock climber where everything's excitement and adrenaline and chaos all the time. And every single minute I'm there, that's what it's like. Then you actually might be disappointed and you may not do very well in emergency medicine long-term because of the amount of time that we also spend dealing with palliative care and dealing with geriatric medicine and mental health issues and other things that actually could be a whole lot more chronic. Some things that we refer to as failure to cope, which sometimes gets a negative connotation. But the reality is, is that the emergency department becomes the default for so many other healthcare issues and lifestyle issues. So the person that was absolutely adamant that they were going to live on their own, they don't ever want to go into a nursing home, retirement home, any kind of assisted living. And then all of a sudden one day, they are no longer managing there and it's a safety risk and suddenly they're brought to the hospital and they can't go home. That is not the adrenaline junkie satisfying case. And yet we deal with those ones a lot more and more and more. Uh, and so you have to kind of be okay with that too. So that's not necessarily fitting in where people would think that that's what they would like to do in the emergency department. I'm curious to hear more details on how that breakdown generally plays out. But first, you certainly have an interesting background in that it, it wasn't direct to medical school post-undergrad. So can you tell us the story of how you wound up where you are? Sure. So I was your stereotypical, I think maybe grade two student who, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> yeah, I was a little focused, probably a little intense when it came to certain things, because that was what I was going to do. And so that was always my focus in life was that, yeah, I'm going to be a veterinarian. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not sure I necessarily thought past that. I was very much on that kind of career path and yet still had a lot of other interests outside of that, meaning that uh, I do a lot of music and theater and other things too that is good actually to be able to do because it's so different from emergency medicine now. But I went through very, very focused finished high school, went to University of Guelph because it's the place, it's the only place in Ontario. There's four veterinary schools in the whole country. Went to vet school there, basically fast-tracked, got finished, went and worked out in private practices in various places in Ontario. And it was while I was doing that, and I'd been doing it for a number of years, and I had moved to a town and developed a good friendship with uh, somebody who happened to be a family doctor, but I was also doing music and stuff with him. So that's why I knew him outside of my job and his job. And uh, he brought up one day and he said, James, you know, you'd make a really good family doctor. And I just looked at him and laughed. I said, are you insane? Like, come <laughs> on. There is no way I'm going to do that. Like, what, what are you talking about? So I don't know. I guess at that point, I just thought, well, I'm going to be a veterinarian and maybe eventually I'll have my own practice. Along the years, when I looked back, I almost applied to grad school in my final year in vet school. 
I actually was applying to a grad position at Cornell University. And one thing led to another. Deadlines were too short, couldn't make them. It was basically a whole series of events that led to me not applying there. But I'd always thought of doing other schooling, I guess. And yet, then after I got out for a few years, it kind of went by the wayside. And I got married and had a family and, and had other responsibilities. Over the course of probably two years, I kind of mulled over this idea. And yeah, I'm in a family, so it's not just my decision. It's my whole family's decision. And my wife had to come around to the idea, too. It took us probably about two years, maybe two years for me, maybe two years for her, too. So that's why I was probably in practice for so long, because it was uh, this long journey of realizing what things I liked about veterinary medicine, what things were not necessarily in line with, with my way of thinking, and what was going to be my solution for that. Some of it, some lifestyle issues too. If, if things were just being too demanding on my time, I wasn't having the ability to do things. Those were all kind of factors that came into play when it came into thinking about an alternate career. So basically, I made the decision I was going to apply to medical school. It was still pre-MCATs that you didn't have to do the MCATs. And I'd been at a school for a while too. I was like, yeah, I don't feel like going back and doing MCATs. It wasn't a requirement when I went through that school. It is now. So I was like, okay, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to be fairly focused, but we're not going to be so crazy focused. I'm going to have some flexibility. I was working as a vet and I applied to medical school and I ended up getting in and said, yeah, you know what? This is the, this is the path we're heading on now. So started out, initially thought that maybe I was going to do family medicine, had some ideas of doing GP anesthesia because a friend, another friend of mine in the town where I was living was a GP anesthetist. So even did some electives and things that way and then thought, no, that's not really what I want to do. Ironically, when I went to apply to my PGY3, I found one of my initial med school applications and I'd actually written right on it, emergency medicine, that that's really what I thought I wanted to do. So to me, it was the best of both worlds in that it was the things that I really liked about vet medicine and that I still got to use my brain. I got to take uncertainty and figure things out. And I got to, it's basically like big puzzles and mind games and problem solving where you're, what tests do I do and how do I get to the endpoint that I need and what information do I need? And still in a bit of a short time frame. So a lot of things in vet medicine, we even back then when I was practicing, we had our own in-house lab and things. So we did a lot of this stuff ourselves and had some answers right away. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I do this way better. I enjoy that way more than like, oh yeah, I'll see you again in two or three weeks. And you know, some people work that way. I'm like, no, nah, I like to be focused. Let's focus. Let's get this figured out and, and then move on to the next problem and figure out where the person needs to get their help. So eventually, went to McMaster, ended up moving back to my hometown after being away for 15 years on my previous career journey. Uh, and now I still live here and work in the community where I grew up. It kind of became a thing for me that you saw all the people in need and it was where I grew up. And it was just like, I want to be working in this community and taking care of the people that I know. Thanks for sharing that. You mentioned that you were thinking about GP and aesthetist, but it wasn't quite for you. And what were the things about it and maybe some of the other things that did not draw you to those specialties? I think some of the things that probably helped me in making the decision not to go to GP and anesthesia, there's a certain component to me that was probably the worst part of veterinary medicine. For a while, uh, when I first got into veterinary medicine, I worked at a mixed animal practice and I did both small animal and large animal. And so I basically did small animal all day long staying at the clinic. And then on call at night, most of the stuff you're doing was large animal. And so it just basically consumes your entire being. Uh, you were like busy all day and then basically barely left the building and most times didn't leave the building, went straight to farm and did farm calls and potentially all night. Not really conducive to like a lifestyle balance. And this is going to be my life, which I knew that, you no, know, my career is part of my life, but I had way too many other interests. I'm the weird artsy scientific guy. So I got to have some avenue to be able to get outside of 
medicine and all this technical stuff. And so I think that was one of the things that I looked at. I said, you know what, do I really want to be doing family practice and then maybe doing anesthesia all evening or something? And it's like, yeah, that's not necessarily a great balance. On top of that, I moved back to St. Catharines right after first year medical school and I went to McMaster. So we did the summer electives and then basically ended up moving. And I kind of got it in my head. My family was doing well here. There were lots of opportunities for them. We have other family here to kind of be able to help out with kids and things at that point in time. And so I really wasn't wanting to leave the area and it wasn't really an option here. Probably the closest place for GP anesthesia, maybe Grimsby, maybe Port Colburn. I can't remember now if at that point they were still doing any GP anesthesia. So it was also kind of career opportunity and looking at whole lifestyle. So I would tell people, like especially medical students listening to this, you need to consider all of these things when you look at your career choice too. Like what are your opportunities going to be? Are you so hard set on what you want to do that you'll give up other aspects of your life? So if I'd really wanted to do GP anesthesia, I probably have to move. That's something you have to take into consideration because if you love your job, but then you hate your life outside of your job, that's going to lead you to burnout. Eventually you're going to, something's going to give. So it is important to take all those things into consideration and that's okay. You don't have to be the consummate, oh my goodness, I'm a professional now, I'm in this career path, that's my be-all and end-all. It's like, no, it's a part of you as a person, but we all know that we're way more multifaceted than that, and that's okay to take those things into consideration when you're looking at a career choice. So I'm cognizant that right now there's two avenues to do Emerge. There's the five-year direct Emerge program, and then there's the two-year family med with the plus one in Emerge. Was that an option to you at the time? And if it was, how did you kind of navigate which one was the best fit for you? So, yeah, those were definitely both options to me. I didn't actually really even consider so much applying to the five-year. Some of that was because of lifestyle changes. I think if I told my family that I was looking at a five-year residency, I might be a divorced uh, (laughs) emergency (laughs) physician. Like, are you crazy? We already went back to school with three small children at home. Are you insane? So yeah, like there was, there were certainly lots of other factors that would come into play that way. That kind of helped me. Yeah, I never really even considered doing the five-year. And some of that was because I wasn't a young person going through this. I was like, this is second career. I was one of the old guys at that point in time. And so some of it was amount of time that I was like, look, I just cannot be in my training for that many years. And so that's a very different decision that like, yeah, if I had been 20 years old when I was doing all of it, it probably would have been different. Maybe I would have done straight into emergency medicine five year, but the two plus one gave me the opportunity to do family medicine. And if I was in family medicine, I could have made that work as my career choice too. And yet gave me the option of doing emergency medicine, which is what I was probably better suited for anyway. But I had that opportunity. And in fact, I could still do both. My residency I did out of Beamsville and then went and and did work at Grimsby and did emerge shifts there. And we had inpatient care and things too. I could have still created a balance even if I wanted to do emergency medicine from there. So that's the one thing that you have and it gives you more variety. So if you do the five-year emerge program, you're an emerge that's it. You don't really have those other options. Whereas the family plus one is still a nice option. They always talk about whether that's going to stay that way in Canada. I do think that there are definitely some bonuses to being a family physician and working in the emergency department versus being the five-year eMERGE person. Uh, Definitely if people are very diehard, want to be in charge of trauma team, work some big city center, maybe be like high administration, that kind of thing. Those are definitely bonuses to doing the five-year program then for sure. If you're not thinking of that kind of career in emergency medicine and maybe a bit more ability for flexibility, 
the two plus one can work out for people too. In terms of geographic practice locations, you mentioned that GP anesthesia seems to be a bit more regionally restricted to where you can do it. Is that true for the Family Med Plus One? You know what? Unfortunately, I've never worked other places to know for sure what to tell you for this answer. In general, my feeling or my thoughts have always been that there may be certain roles in certain places where they're going to prefer or require a five-year program person for a position. I'm not sure that that is a huge stumbling block in Canada at this point in time still. I know people that trained in the two plus one, they're working all over the place, including downtown Toronto and things. So it's not like they're all five year, but that may change over time too. As we get more people trained in the Royal College five-year program, then there might be more places that do become restricted that way. So it is something to consider as to what you're thinking of being your final goal. If you want to work at Sunnybrook and be in charge of trauma team and that kind of thing, you might want to look into that. What are their staff like right now? And who are they looking at hiring to? Do they look at the two plus ones or not versus community? If you want to work in a smaller community and you do the five-year program, you might be disappointed and that doesn't give you some of the opportunities that you're looking for because you're wanting to be more hardcore and dealing with bigger programs and that kind of thing. Those are all things you need to consider. I still think the two plus one probably gives a lot of flexibility. We still have a good number of people in Niagara region, at least, that actually don't even have the plus one. They have their family medicine training, and we don't have a requirement in our hospitals that you have to have the plus one to work as an emergency physician. We've got other options for people. We have a program right now in Niagara South where they do kind of some mentorship programs and things that are less structured than, say, a plus one year. And we've definitely had people take advantage of those programs and then work in the emergency departments. And there's other people that we're fine just working in the emergency department without the extra year. So lots of ability. You really need to look at what your final goals are. Is there anything that you wish you had known before making your decision about your specialty or any advice you have for students who are currently making that decision? I think the big things I would comment on is, number one, keep in mind that even within a specialty, especially emergency medicine, there can be a lot of differences in how you practice. And so look into those options before you go into the career. What are your job prospect opportunities? It tends to be quite good compared to some other specialties. Like we don't have people doing emergency medicine and then having to do three and four fellowships while they're waiting, trying to get a job. We've had our poor students going through for like orthopedics and things. They're crazy well qualified by the time they get done, but they've just spent years and years. I'd already been in practice four or five years when somebody from my med school came through doing a locum one weekend. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm working on my second or third fellowship because you can't get a job because of how things are. So important to look at those options if you're thinking about going elsewhere. So if you're thinking, for example, going to the US because lots of people get their US board exams and then travel around, does it look different for you what your job prospects are in the two plus one versus the five-year program? Those are all questions, unfortunately, I can't answer all of them, but things to keep in mind. So I think it's good to look to the future as to what you think your life looks like and what your whole long-term life goals look like and how that specialty or those specialty choices are going to fit into that plan for yourself. That's good advice. So the third part of our interview is digging into really the nitty gritty details of what you do. So prior to COVID, what does a typical day or week look like in your role? So there is no typical day or week because <laughs> every shift looks different. It varies tremendously one day to the next. Most people that I know, at least in emergency medicine, basically commit to a certain number of shifts per month. 
And so you have some flexibility there. So that's one really good thing with emergency medicine is it gives you flexibility is the positive. The negative is you're going to have to work during the sociable hours, meaning in the evenings and weekends and overnights are the times when we're actually the busiest. And we have our schedule set up so that we have more people working in those times when everybody else in your family is not going to be working if they have a desk job where they work nine to five or some semblance thereof. So plus and a minus. It gives me the opportunity to do things that other people couldn't. Like I could go as the parent volunteer when my kids were little to go on school trips. Why? Because I don't work every day of the week and I'll be working the weekend, but I'm off on Wednesday. So they've got some trips somewhere and I get to go and hang out with my kids and do that kind of stuff. So it gives you opportunity to do certain things that you wouldn't otherwise have. And yet you have to keep in mind that you have to work sometime. So, and you're also going to be working when it's the busiest. When it comes to typical day, it's going to change depending to where you're positioned in your department, how the schedules work within the department. Basically, you rarely have nothing to do in the emergency department. You're generally pretty busy. During COVID, things did close way down in numbers, but it's kind of come back to where it was. And now we're doing what we used to do plus COVID on top of it. So it's not generally that you're going to be sitting around for huge periods of time being bored. You just have to be okay with not having a schedule with not being predictable in what's going on in your work life. Can you give us an example of a week's schedule? Sure. So it depends on how many shifts per month that you've committed to, at least the way that it works where I'm working. You can actually have times where you cram your shifts. So basically, if people ask, like, do you get vacation? I'll say, well, yes and no. I actually don't ever get vacation in that we don't ever give up our shifts. We have an expectation we're going to cover the shifts that we've committed to. And yet I can ask to work seven days in a row so I could have days off. So I currently do 14 shifts a month, plus two days of on-call on top of that, keeping in mind some of those shifts are overnights. And so they can end up taking up a few days of time, actually. And so I could, if I wanted to have like a week off, yeah, absolutely. I could have a week off every single month. It would mean that I'm doing all those shifts pretty close together. And so I don't choose to do that. That also means you have to have flexibility around other people's schedules. So there are times where I work a bunch of days in a row, but then I have days off, even though I didn't ask for it, just because that's the way the scheduling works out. We've got 30 plus emergency physicians, I think, working, for example, in St. Catharines now. And so you have to work around their schedules too. You can also plan in other activities then. So we definitely have people who, you know what, <clears throat> they want to work a clinic a certain day of the week. And so they're always off every Wednesday or every Tuesday morning or whatever else. Uh, so you can definitely work those things out. I don't personally have a whole lot of plans that way. I try to stay fairly flexible, but it also then gives me opportunity with my other educational requirements to get those times worked in. So I'm guessing this probably varies a bit by site, but how long are your shifts? So the shifts are a moving target also. Shifts in general, eight to nine hours in St. Catharines. I do work a couple shifts a month in Welland that one of the shifts is 1 to 11.30, so it's like a 10-hour shift. So in some of the other sites, they've got fewer doctors per day, and some of the shifts are longer, like 10, but never more than 12 hours is what I can recall, at least even from our urgent cares. In St. Catharines, they tend to be shorter. They tend to be 8 to 9 hours because it tends to be a little extra chaotic and the volumes are higher. And you also tend to get some pretty sick people, so we don't necessarily have you there as many hours because after, say, Usually four hours, you might be the main person, and then another person comes on and you take a bit more of a backseat to some of the extra chaos. But four hours of continuous chaos is generally a pretty good amount for most people to handle. And then most times people are like, okay, I just need to slow down just a little bit. I got to clean up all this other mess from before. So 
eight hours. Right now, we have a few that are actually shorter than that because we're filtering a lot of people through a rapid assessment zone. So people that are ambulatory, but still need a fair amount of workup. So they, they're fairly complicated. And so we've actually got some extra shifts there where they overlap and are shorter. So you're seeing higher density over a shorter period of time. So those, those shifts might be as short as six hours, but then most people are staying definitely beyond the six hours. And in terms of schedule, graveyard shift versus daytime, is it that you get to do more day shifts as you become a bit more senior? How does that allocation work? There is enough variability in what people want and what what fits their lifestyle with our group that we're fairly flexible within reason. Do not go into emergency medicine and expecting, oh, I don't ever want to work weekends. Come on, (laughs) don't pick the specialty. Oh, and I can't work overnights because, you know, I, I have other responsibilities. I can't be here yeah, you know what, not going to work. We did have one of our colleagues who finally sent a message saying, I'm just wondering, just just throwing this out there, wondering if there's a chance maybe I could keep working with the group, but not work overnights. He's over like 70 years old, I think now. (laughs) We all kind of went, are you insane? You've still been working overnights after 65. If you want to keep working with us and not do overnights, we all came to an agreement. Yeah, that's totally fine. We also have some people in the group that they have plans that they do certain clinics on certain days of the week and they work more overnights. So there's some people that like working the overnight. It works well with their lifestyle. They come in, they tend to see more people during that shift, their compensation may end up being better than during a day shift, because that's just kind of reasonable that you generally are going to have better compensation when you're taking some of these shifts that are less desirable versus a day shift. Most of us take a fairly decent cross-section of the shifts available, and then you can make certain requirements, but I don't know anybody that's so restrictive that they like, oh, but I can never ever do this shift or the other shift. We all have preferences. We've also got the flexibility that, hey, you know what? I see you're working this shift and I'm working this other shift the same day. Can we swap? And so we got a, a ton of swaps going on. That's You'll notice that as medical students, <laughs> you'll be signed up. I'm supposed to be with this preceptor and you show up and it's not that person. <laughs> uh, because sometime within the last 12 hours or less or maybe a few days, but somebody decided to change the shift because something happened or like, oh yeah, I've got this other family responsibility that just happened or this other opportunity just came up and I wondered if I could take advantage of it. And so you're like, yeah, okay, no problem. So we'll, we'll swap things out. So we tend to be a really good group that way. That seems really nice. Thinking back, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about emergency medicine, if you think it's all going to be super exciting, you may be disappointed. If you had to, and I recognize this is probably a really difficult question, if you had to estimate within a given shift or perhaps more broadly might be a little bit easier, like within a given month, what percent you would classify as high acuity versus more of the palliative care and catch for things that are primary care issues but presented in the eMERGE, what would be the breakdown? So difficult question to answer. The biggest thing that will have a bearing on that is I can only comment for mostly St. Catharines is what I'm talking about because that's where I work the most. But the thing that has the biggest effect on that is where you are scheduled to work in the department. So it has worked out well for nursing staff to have doctors kind of assigned to certain areas. So not every place works that way necessarily. Some places you just come in and you work wherever and wherever they need you, you just go there. We have areas divided off. So we've got our main emergency department. So people that are assigned to that shift, 
We've got people that are assigned to our rapid assessment zone. So those are people that are not so ill, they need to be in a stretcher. They're hopefully at least not planned to be resuscitations. Yeah, take that as a, uh, with a grain of salt uh, <laughs> because it happens. <laughs> We're suddenly resuscitating somebody down in B11 and we can't get in the room because the person's behind the door. Anyway, so all kinds of crazy stuff happens, but it will have an effect on where you're working. I tend to have a pretty even distribution. It just so happens right now, at least seven shifts in the department. I work 14 plus two, so I tend to usually get two of each shift. That's just kind of general distribution, okay? So out of those shifts, we have probably five of them have some amount of time that you spend in the main emergency department. That's when you're gonna get the high acuity type patients more so than some of the more long-term kind of decisions. However, that being said, there's a good number of those people long-term decisions who are not mobile and can't go to our rapid assessment zone. So you'll end up with sometimes almost a 50-50 split where you've got the high acuity crazy stuff like the stuff you'll see on TV because that's the exciting stuff. And the other 50% could be the patients that are more long-term and long-term decisions. And now the emergency department has become the lowest common denominator and they just can't go home. So for an overall over the course of a month, it kind of goes in waves too, but I would say maybe 20, 25% more higher acuity at the maximum. And you'll have some shifts where it's total chaos and another one where you literally don't have a single resuscitation. And I can, I still remember, oh my goodness, I remember a medical student coming for a horizontal elective. They were, only came for like a few hours. And, and I think we ran three codes simultaneously, I think it was. It was just like we had one and we were just barely finished and there's another one starting in the next room and we went over and we did that and then we're st- and then like somebody else rolls in and maybe one of my colleagues had to start it and we went back in there too and it was just total chaos and we got finished and remember the student like wow that was like the craziest thing that was so amazing <laughs> and you're like yeah and, and you know what i've done this for a little while now so yeah it was crazy and actually it's kind of funny because when, when you when you're in it you're like oh my goodness it's out of control and you're like doing all this internal dialogue and thinking this i went to mcmaster so i do lots of self-assessment and you're like oh my goodness it's out of control oh i'm still going to look completely like everything's under control nothing is out of the ordinary but when you got done you're like that's what i signed up for that's one of the things that although it was total chaos when it's done you're like oh my goodness, that's what I think I thought emergency medicine was like. So you still get days like that, but you have to understand that it's not like that every single day. If you want that, you're probably going to want to go to some place where they have tons of trauma and things, and that may not be in Canada. If you want that kind of chaos, because you'll talk to people that do electives in New York City and with trauma teams, and they are just constantly putting in chest tubes and all this kind of stuff. We don't tend to have that so much here for anybody. We tend to have other things. We get a lot of medical stuff that can be quite, quite crucial, but there's a good amount of your day that's not going to be the total chaos and it's going to be dealing with the other issues. Ironically, some of the chaos and things is almost easier mentally to deal with because we have great algorithms. We've got approaches everybody takes. Everybody's on the same path. There's only one path. You don't have arguments over it. You know, oh, look, this person's here with a STEMI. I call HIU. Are you going to take them in Hamilton? Yes. Ship them now. Great. Five, 10 minutes done, patients cared for, gotten great care because we know that those things are time sensitive and so they're very straightforward. The other ones where the person comes in, you're like, 
is there really a medical issue here? I'm not sure. And if so, which medical issues? And is there something that's going to kill them right now? Or is there not anything that's going to kill them right now? And, you know, is there some way to be able to get them home? And you can spend a lot of time and energy on those things. And it can be mentally very draining and maybe dealing with family members, that kind of thing, but in a different way than the mental drain of the STEMI that rolled in or the multiple vehicle collision that happened and that kind of stuff. Potentially speaking of STEMIs or vehicle collisions or whatever else, is there a specific clinical encounter or experience that was particularly poignant for you? This is a bit of a tough question because the amount of time that you spend in each scenario can be very short. So some of them that stick in my mind were not short, were very long. Probably one of the sickest children that I dealt with. I dealt with a very sick eight-year-old for I think it was about three or four hours. And back then we didn't have OTN. So we didn't have the ability to have video conferencing. And I remember having one of our mobile, we, we had phones that worked just in the department. I remember being on the phone with the pediatric intensivist in McMaster for literally three, three and a half hours continuously. I still remember most of the minutes of that, like three and a half hours. That was, that was tough. The good thing was at the end of the day, they actually walked out of McMaster Hospital and apparently had no deficits, but it was distressing, it was upsetting, and yet you had to be completely composed even when things didn't make sense. You walk in and you go, okay, I've done PALS. In fact, I just did PALS a few months ago and I should know all this stuff. This isn't in the algorithm. What the heck am I doing? What's going on here? So I remember things like that. In general, overall, I'd have to say the times that are the most poignant are having to walk into family members, you've never met them, you don't know the family, you don't know the situation and have to tell them that somebody has died that you were unable to resuscitate them or they came in and deteriorated and they passed away. And that can be really tough, especially because when you read most of the information and literature on breaking bad news, they have very idealistic kind of an idea as to, oh, well, this is how we do it. And we prepare them and we do this and we give them time here and everything else. And I'm like, did somebody do a study of this in the emergency department? I'd love to see what they say because it seems all great, but it doesn't seem very realistic when they talk about how this goes down. And so that has to be one of the most difficult things dealing with is trying to develop that relationship with a family literally in a matter of moments to then be able to break terrible news and do it in a way that is compassionate and thoughtful and giving them a chance to be able to process it. And that certainly has to be the stuff that tends to get to me. I don't avoid it and I understand the importance of it, but it, it just can be really tough. And it's probably one of the hardest things because you don't have the opportunities the way they talk about in, oh yes, give them this time and find a quiet place and prepare this and everything else. You don't have those opportunities. And so that can be a difficult thing in emergency medicine to do well. What are some things about your job that if we're reading about what a career is like in an emergency medicine that we won't necessarily see when we read about on paper? the amount of elder or geriatric type care that you do, palliative care, mental health. Those are probably the biggest ones that I wouldn't say necessarily people expect going into emergency medicine. I think some of the newer, maybe newer resources probably have more coverage of that. There's definitely talk of emergency geriatric care, even becoming subspecialties and offering different programs and things. So there's definitely a recognition of that being a big part of it. But I don't think 
that most people expect that that's what they'd be dealing with in the emergency department. And yet, as I'd mentioned, the emergency department is still the default lowest common denominator when everybody else is closed, when anxiety is running high, when there's nobody else around to be able to take care of things, the emergency department becomes the place where people go. In some cases, very appropriately, and in some cases, not appropriately. There are other better ways to serve it. But regardless, you are tasked with the job of trying to figure it out and sort it out. And you're doing it with few resources and a whole lot of unknowns. Mental health would be the other thing. At least in St. Catharines, we have a nice setup in that we have a whole psychiatry area in the department that helps with assessing those people appropriately. Because from my training in psychiatry, it takes a long time to do proper psychiatric evaluation. You cannot do that in an emergency doctor's schedule. I just don't think that it works well. So we have come up with at least an alternative at this point in time for dealing with those things. I do foresee in the future, the whole healthcare system having to make adjustments because of some of these things that are so prominent now in emergency medicine. Are there other ways for us to provide better care for the geriatric population? Are there other ways to get them into assisted living, safe safe spaces in an immediate or at least in a much more timely fashion that would be appropriate so they don't have to come into the hospital and take up hospital resource beds when they definitely need help, but maybe they don't need to be in a hospital. And right now that's their only option. Same with mental health, where we come up with some other options for people. And those would be areas that I see potentially changing over time. And they definitely right now are taking up a good amount of resources and your time in the emergency department that you wouldn't necessarily see anywhere else. Do you have any final words of wisdom or advice for students considering a career or a job like yours? If you deal well with uncertainty, you deal well with problem solving and being the first person where nobody knows anything, that's great. As one of my colleagues has said, and actually often says to the students though too, you have to keep in mind if you go into emergency medicine is that you're going to make mistakes and people potentially are going to be hurt. And that's just the reality of it because of that amount of uncertainty. When somebody comes in what I sometimes refer to as pre-code or pre-death, where they're like imminently heading towards dying in front of you, you may not have all the information. So later on, when you look back at it, you might be able to say, oh, if I had done this, if I did that, if I had done this other thing, but you have to give yourself number one permission to not have made all the right choices necessarily, because that's just reality. And understand that there were limitations when you were working with them. So it's fine at the end of the day for the, for somebody else to go and say, well, of course, Dr. Beecroft, this is what was going on. And why didn't you do that? But you have to be okay in your own mind to say, you know what, this was not the reality that was going on while I was there. This is what I had to deal with and kind of be okay with that. So you have to give yourself permission to not be perfect on everything because nobody actually is because we don't have a perfect system. The person doesn't roll in with all of the information sitting there for you. There are times we are having a heck of a time even getting vital signs on the patient, much less knowing what the potassium is. I can't tell you how many times it's like, I just need to know what the potassium is doing. I know that sounds stupid, but it's like when the person's dying in front of you, that's one of the things that we just don't have access to right away. And yet you have to deal with it. And I didn't really realize that so much until I got talking with one of my intensivists the other day over a case kind of similar to that. And she just said to me, oh my goodness, James, I can't do eMERGE because I can't deal with all that uncertainty. I'm like, hey, that's great. You need to understand that. If you like dealing with really sick people and having to deal with lots of that kind of stuff, but in a much more controlled environment, you probably want to be an intensivist instead where a good number of times they have more answers available than we would necessarily have in the emergency department because we're going to be running blind to start with and you find the things out later. 
So my patient the other day who is going presyncopal and while I'm talking to him dumps this pressure down to 50 with absolutely zero other complaints and comes as an orthostatic hypotension. When all of a sudden I get the phone call in CT that he just vomited copious amounts of blood and clots all over the floor. And that's when you figure out that he's actually an upper GI bleed. Well, of course I didn't order blood or anything on the guy. Why would I have even thought of that? And that's okay. And you have to be okay in your own skin and in your own brain to say, you know what? Later, somebody might be like, well, you could have done this and you could have done that. And it's like, okay, that's just not reality. And that's okay. Because expectations are becoming fairly high on emergency doctors that society in general is still in this a bit of a fantasy world, I think, where we can fix everything and that everything is instantaneously available. And it's just a matter of, well, if you just do the right thing, then we can always fix it, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the choices the patient has made, regardless of a whole lot of variables. But that's just not reality. And that's okay. You just have to know that in emergency medicine and give yourself that permission to be able to deal with that and understand that you're not going to be able to be perfect. You try and be as safe as possible and make the best decisions you can. And you have to learn to be okay with that. And it's good to have some other people around, some colleagues that you can talk to about things when things don't go well, because those things will happen. And you're going to have times where it's just a bad scenario. None of us like dealing with the baby that ends up coming in that was a sudden infant death syndrome. And they come in and Where's the first place they end up is after they've dealt with the paramedics, which has to be a heck of a difficult situation. They come into the emergency department and you're like, what do you do with this? And how do you deal with the fact that you can't do anything? And no matter what you do, it's not going to make a difference in the final outcome and how you process that. So you have to have some resources available. I find it tends to be my colleagues because there's always so much confidentiality in things and you try to be very respective of that. And so, you know, your colleagues are under the same confidentiality agreements and we're all dealing with the same things. And so we can talk about those things and still keep a comfort confidential and yet give yourself a sounding board to be able to deal with those things and talk to someone about it. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. And I feel like I have a much better idea of whether or not Emerge might be a good fit for me. So thank you so much. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program, and all views expressed are ours alone. Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Music composed by David Rubel and performed by the David Rubel Quintet. Thank you for listening.